HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. I'm really excited about today's show because we are interviewing Chef Jess Murphy, who is the chef of one of our favorite restaurants on the entire island of Ireland called Kai in Galway. Not only is Jess hilarious, as you will soon find out, she also makes the most incredible, colorful food. And when she is not working in the restaurant, Jess also works closely with UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. And she talks a little bit about that work today in our show. This interview is also very special because we are joined by my brother Eli Sussman as a guest host. Uh, He has his own show called The Line on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, we own a restaurant, Samisa, together, and he's also the mad genius behind the Instagram account at the Sussmans. So we had a lot of fun talking to Jess. Um, I think I have to say, like, one of my favorite parts of the interview was just hearing about how many purveyors Jess uses at Kai. I was personally shocked. I think the number was 140, and it's literally like i have one person for strawberries in this season i have one person for razor clams i have one person for lettuce and it really shows what it means to be like a truly seasonal restaurant and a restaurant where you work to support the local food system um in a concrete way it means that you have 140 purveyors 140 relationships to manage um and it's like an insane amount of work to really walk that walk. You know, two things that really stood out to me from the conversation were the fact that, you know, when she was talking about what makes Ireland special, she mentioned a few of the women in Ireland who were involved in developing farmhouse cheeses and about how they were originally from other places. Um, Jeff's being an immigrant herself, originally from New Zealand, um, you know, just mentioned the fact that some of the women who are in Ireland and who are known for producing this incredible artisanal food are actually immigrants themselves. So we had a little bit of a conversation about, you know, what is Irish food 
is Irish food of the people or is it of the land? I think the answer is probably a little bit of both, but she has, uh, Jess has a really interesting perspective that puts a new spin on things. Um, so I really liked that. And then also, you know, when Eli asks Jess about the most special Irish food, she mentions butter and how special butter is. And, you know, on the one hand, we might expect incredible dairy from Ireland, but Jess goes on to mention that she can tell from tasting the butter where in Ireland specifically the butter is from. Um, This idea of the terroir of butter is something that I think is really incredible, and I hope that we explore that a little further um, in some of our upcoming podcasts. Yeah. Well, super cool stuff. And um, thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show today. What is the menu like today at Kai? How do you define the cuisine and who is generally your customer? Like, is it Irish tourists that are exploring Gaul? My dream for for Kai was to be like a neighborhood restaurant. So I wanted generations going there. I wanted to see your kids grow up and see them going from having fish fingers to a medium rare steak and come in on their first dates. I wanted to be that lady in the kitchen, you know, waving at them on their first date, embarrassing them. Um, you know, I just wanted that really family. At, you know, I want to cook for people. I get joy out of cooking for people. And, you know, a lot of people don't cook for people, I think, sometimes. A lot of people cook for their own ego. What's your favorite part about cooking in Ireland? Ireland's a great place to be odd and be left alone, um, which is absolutely suits me down to the ground because I'm completely kind of a small bit that shit when it comes to small suppliers like I love going to like I'm from a farm like so I love going to farmers and you know just going to the fields and then knowing what now we know what fields of stuff like we know the best beetroot comes from spittle because the fields are so close to the sea you know we started to learn all those little bits and pieces so my favorite thing is, I suppose, is the seasons. Like, I never have one favorite thing. Like, I love cooking with hoggett and I love cooking with mutton. But then also I love game season because game season's huge here. And, you know, we have one guy that, like, shoots all our game. Um, and, yeah, and he's amazing. And I actually met, I met Eamon, who was an ex-school teacher, Um. So I actually met Eamon, um, I went to get my eyebrows done at a local beautician's and my beautician, you know, shop game. And she was like, I know this guy that has extra venison and stuff. Do you want to take it? And I was like, yeah, okay. Like what's his name? And she goes, oh, he's from Clare. And County Clare is kind of one of the best kind of game spots. Wicklow and Clare. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, try it out. And so basically 13 years later, you know, like I get like uh, messages like, oh, Jess, do you want any bunnies or blah, blah, blah. Or (laughs) um, so, yeah, like it's just a family relationship. Like, and so everything from like woodcock to snipe to pheasant to mallard to widgeon to teal, like that's intelligent cooking. And the fact that we can actually sell that in a restaurant streams solidly and people come back all the time for the venison. I don't care if you have venison well done or medium or whatever. You're eating venison. 
for me, it's not a snob. I'm not a food snob. I'm just like, you're enjoying it. You know, it's wild meat. Give us a, a recap of how you found your way to Ireland from New Zealand. And um, what was that journey like for you? It's so funny when people say journey. It, it kind of wasn't a journey. It was like a, it was like a kind of coincidence of like, just I happened to be at the right place at the right time. Uh, I'm from rural New Zealand, so I grew up in New Zealand. But anyway, me and my brother were watching the Grand Prix one day and um, Michelin came up on the Grand Prix and I asked my brother, who's like nine years older than me, like, um, oh, like, he goes, oh, yeah, they're like, they're changing the tyres. And then he said, oh, you know, like Michelin, like star chefs are like, you know, the Navy SEALs of like cooking and like being chefs. And as soon as he said that, I was like, yeah, man, that's me. Done. I'm going to be like a Navy SEAL, Michelin star chef. But then I had to like get my ass out of New Zealand. I was like uh, 19 and like New Zealand, if you don't know where it is, which you probably don't know where it is, you're going to have to look on a map. I'm from the East Coast of the North Island. So it's even a bit of a mission to get your ass out of New Zealand in the beginning. So I asked my mum and dad for some cash for a one-way ticket um, to Australia. And um, they were like, oh, okay. Um, so they gave me the cash. I think they just wanted me to piss off. And then, um, yeah, I got the one-way ticket to Australia. And like I remember sitting there on the airplane and I'm putting my sunglasses on I was like yeah man fuck you New Zealand put those sunglasses on fucking sign our assholes um I'm going to Europe but I really wasn't I was going to Australia but like that was the next step it's like getting to Australia and like getting enough money to go to Europe um yeah and then I was working in the outback of Australia I did the grill there from like 10 30 at night to like 6 30 in the morning the cooks treated you like a piece of shit even though you're a cook yourself do you remember that time when I can't believe it's not butter was like really fucking popular? I just remember them like just being like these fucking top class chefs holding like two liter jugs of like I can't believe it's not butter, and, like just pouring that on crocodile and like flambéing it, and then they were doing like deep fried mass bars and stuff. I just thought they were shit. Like I thought they were amazing, and um, so yeah, I was a waitress there, but like anybody that like notes New Zealand Australian divide like when we pronounce numbers the Australians would be like I could fucking tell you're from New Zealand straight away and like give you like so much shit so that's when I moved to the UK so that's when I started you know that's when I moved to Wales it was absolutely amazing I lived in like a, a really small kind of village which was beautiful and uh worked in a 17th century I think 16th century freehold house for the private lake and two private gardeners and it was basically the dream you know Dan Barber eat your heart out 2002 like um so that was a dream I worked there for like two years three years and then I was like um you know like I was married then and I was like you know what you should do is like because you're married you should go home to New Zealand and have children and settle down and forget about your career and shit because you know you're only a cook anyway and uh, so I went back to New Zealand, fucking hated it. And then I was just like, oh, I'm out of here. Because like every chef, every Kiwi chef that I worked with fucked off to Europe. So everybody was still in Europe. So I was like, what am I doing here? Man? I need to go and work in Michelin. That's it. And so was your hope when you moved to Ireland, were you thinking to yourself, 
I'm going to get a lot of experience under a Michelin chef and then I'm going to open my own place? Like, were you already planning what you wanted your future to look like or were you just trying to get a job? Yeah, no, the whole place is planned when I was 16. So that's all, yeah, that's that's why I always had it in my head. So it doesn't matter what fucking job I had, that was going to happen anyway. And really confident about it as well and didn't even think twice about it. Um. So, um, and then, oh, then I got home and then I was watching TV and it was like, you know, the waves. So it's like, uh, I don't know, like, you know, a Sandals Hotel advert. It was kind of like that, but it was kind of like, like the waves are going, they like moved to the Western Island. And I was like, where's that? Dave's like, oh, I used to have a holiday there when I was a kid, you know, kind of Carlo. And he goes, that's Galway. And I was like, that looks really cool. I think we should just move there. Can we just go there so I can look at it? And then we picked up everything and moved to Galway. So when you ended up in Galway with Dave, what was next? Like, did you look for a job? Did you want to open your own place immediately? What happened in Galway? Oh, well, sure. I was like, oh, I'm a bit burnt out. I think I need to, like, just take a normal job for a bit. So then I just became a cheesemonger. And then I worked with, like, Irish raw milk cheese for three years and then kind of studied charcuterie, European charcuterie and stuff. So. Um, but actually that was really cool, but like, it, it was no, it was like a no pressure of work, which was really good. But then, you know, like, I'm like, you know, when, you know, that like show where, oh, um, Simpsons, when Homer's like electrifying himself, trying to get that cake, it's basically me and the hospitality industry, no matter how I'm like, no, that's that man. I'm like, fucking 43, I'm out of here. I'm not working that shit again. And then suddenly I'm back to like 18 hour days walking like, fucking John Wayne all the way home. So, you know, like, I don't know, I'm not that intelligent, I guess. Um, not intelligent enough to get my ass out of the industry. Um, yeah, and then, like, in 2010, like, the whole, the whole economy went fucking crazy. And then um, I was like, well, everybody has no money. Everyone's bankrupt. I can just get a small loan now. I could probably give you crafty enough to get in there to get a restaurant. A couple from Stand of Flower Shop where Kai is now, and she was from San Francisco, and she was like, I want to retire, but I want Jess to take over the restaurant, well, the flower shop, and turn it into a restaurant. So basically, that's what I did. She basically, they gave me a chance to get in there. Because in Ireland, I don't know if it's like the States, but like, you know, when you get offered to rent a place, you still have to pay like 120 grand for key money. They call it key money, which is fucking bullshit because it's like, what are you doing? Paying 120 grand for keys? But anyway, so it was no key money, no bullshit. It's just, you know, that was the money. And then I went to the bank manager who I knew from drinking in the wine bar because I worked at Sheridan's and, you know, you know all the bank managers and stuff because they're the only ones that are going to buy like really aged Conte and Gruyere. So, because um, you're like, whoa, that's like 45 euros. No one else is buying that today. Um, but anyway, I knew the bank manager and I was like, um, made a meeting and then I was like, Pat, I need like, I don't know, 40 grand. And he was like, all right. I forget, like I'd been to Pat 10 times asking him for amounts to up to 500 to open my own dairy to make ice cream okay so I wasn't exactly the sanest person to start giving money to 
but Pat was kind of relaxed then because it was like 35 grand, 40 grand, he would do that, he would take the risk. And um, yeah, so Dave basically left the whole buying operation thing up to me to buy everything for the restaurant. And like, I forgot like a till, a whole till system. I forgot a whole docket system. Um, that's why the docket system still to this day in Clyde does not connect up to the kitchen because it was like 350 euros. It's like, no, nah, just fucking right docket. It's great. Can you talk a little bit about how the food scene has changed since you opened Kai and like whether there's, you know, more produce available, more products available, whether the diner's tastes have changed. Like how are things different now than they were when you opened? Oh. Yeah, well, like, I've been in Galway for 17 years. But, yeah, you just couldn't get anything in Galway. And then, like, suddenly, like, once you scratch the surface, you could kind of dig yourself in, like, a little tapeworm and just be like, all right. And then Sylvia grows onions, right, and then she has stacks. And then you start this whole little network, and that's what we kind of, I like, I can't take credit myself. There's, like, there would have been five or six of us at the time that were equally doing the same thing but kind of either working together at the time or working like in competition with one another. So I think that's, that was like really healthy to drive on. Um, I don't know, getting guys in Offley to grow corn or New Zealand spinach or offering seeds that could like yellow tomatoes and somebody would grow them. And then you're like, oh my God, you're Polish. Um, can you make some sauerkraut? Can I buy some sauerkraut off you? Can I buy some pervy off you? Can I, you know, and like, so it all started off by, you know, you know, kitchens are the United Nations of, of food all the time. So, and people are growing stuff all the time. So, yeah, that's how that all started. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do around political issues and social issues? I know, you know, you've worked and done benefits around direct provision and you've worked with the UN and doing a Ukraine benefit now. And I'm wondering how that connects to your work as a chef. Yeah, so uh, when you come into Ireland and then you seek, and you're a refugee, um, and you're seeking asylum, you get put into places called, like, like basically to host you because the government don't have any homes, so they put you in, say, an old kind of hotel. Um, it's called Direct Vision, and you basically, like, get a room. You could be, like, in a room with your son that's, like, 15, 16, um you share a room uh you don't you can't cook for yourself um so breakfast lunch and dinner are provided by like really shit caterers it's the same caterers that own the catering companies in the prisons in america they're called Arca. and they also own a boca as well um which is controversial as well because you know it's quite it's kind of funny it's yet and yet um but um you know, they're feeding people, like, uh, from all over the place with kind of cornflakes and milk and stuff like that, which is, like, imagine, like, coming from Syria and your house has been, and so, like, everything was gone. And then you're in Ireland and you can't cook for yourself. So you're at that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I don't know, all my kind of stuff starts from somewhere where I get pissed off and I start speaking about it. And, like, food has always been political. So, you know, like, where there is hungry people, there's always war. Um, and kind of the more we're seeing that, the more factual it is. Um, I really don't give a shit about what side you're on. I, I care about human. 
Um, you know, like, so it's like, direct, I started working with direct vision anyway, because I was like, this is crazy. Why not let these people feed themselves? They're from Syria. Like, they used to feed them, like, I don't know, 45 people at lunch. You know, that's what they do. They, like, they're machines. Like, they can actually feed, like, 50 people at a time. Like, all these women just get together, and that's what they do. That's the way the style of food cooks. So um, it started, like, by that and then it started by like making sure like small kitchens got put into direct provision centers so people could actually make chapatis or um i don't know there was nana from the congo who's making these congolese dumplings i can't remember the name i worked with so many cultures we can't remember it. like basically every culture has a donut um which is amazing um so, yeah, it's kind of like every conflict I learn a different culture's food. Like, I, I mainly know about re- West Africa. I wouldn't know anywhere else. Um, and obviously the Middle East is kind of like my uh, specialist subject. But, um, yeah, it all started from there. And it all started off with, you know, the magazine article. I, I think it was, was a time with God's food. And it was like uh, Renee Rezepi. Was it David Chang or Albert Salter? Yeah. Um, anyway, I think it was Alex Salter, David Chang, and Renee Vizepi, and they said the gods of food. And then it was like number forty-five. The only woman on that list was fucking Alice Waters. That was me. I lost. I lost my plot. Like I, was, I couldn't believe that was actually fucking happening. Um, so from then on, I've just been on this kind of complete vengeance trail of like promoting women, um, promoting those who can't promote themselves. In the industry, teaching people that you know you are good enough, um, you are cooking good enough. Doesn't matter what style you are. It doesn't matter if you're going to Copenhagen and you're doing shaved ice with um, fig leaf flavored syrup ice, or you're making pierogi in amazing like local restaurant. Like what you do is good enough. Um, yeah, so it all started from there. And that's how I ended up in the Middle East and stuff like that. And um, I ended up being a high-profile um, UNHCR uh, profile and high-profile ambassador. Sorry, so many different words. Um, uh, because I just wanted to go and talk to people that like were from war-torn countries about like what kind of tomatoes they grew at home. Because I think the poor things had had so much shit going on that, like, you know, there is a connection with food and it's universal. And so we could all start talking about, you know, what happened to them over there, which journalists do all the time. But, like, I'm like, hey, man, like, what kind of chilies was there? Like, what's the difference between Homs and uh, Damascus? Do you like spicy things? Or do the mountains like spicy things? Or down by the sea like spicy things? You know, like, it's a whole conversation. And for... I don't know, somebody just taking the time out, like, for 45 minutes, an hour. Even the secret, even the police will be sitting there with me and, like, we have a conversation for about an hour. They actually just forget all the shit that's going on just for half an hour. You know, it's like me, like re- resetting your mind, my, like, kind of, like, minding yourself. Um, because I think once you start working with your hands, it shuts off your head and then it kind of opens your heart. Um, because I think that's how you heal I think caring for another person is how you heal and I think caring for another person to me is cooking them food cool so you sourced 
multiple recipes from either people that you knew or from other countries? And then is your goal to you personally take it into schools? Or are you hoping that other schools will use it as, as a teaching tool? Well, as a teaching tool, and I hope it goes on the curriculum, but I'm like um, fully prepared to like kind of go to schools at the beginning of it to take it on. And I thought it was something we could use as a really good base for World Refugee Day. But the book, the, the recipes were provided by um, immigrants and um, refugees to Ireland. So it was really cool. Like everybody that put in a cookie lives in Ireland, but isn't necessarily Irish. That's such an interesting um, like segue into the next question I had, which is about like what is Irish food and what gets to be called Irish food in, in a time where there is so much immigration to Ireland and so much of the, you know, food that's being written about um, is the food of immigrants and refugees. Do you find that there's a conversation happening around like what it gets to be called Irish food and what doesn't? Irish food is from immigrants. Like Irish food stems from everywhere. From the Vikings to the French to anybody that really invaded Ireland at the time, you know, because there was not one really set culture, which I find really interesting. So, yeah, like the bacon and cabbage and shit like that that you see over there for, like, St. Patrick's Day, I don't know. Is it relative anymore? I don't think it is. So do you think there's, like, an attempt to sort of draw these, you know, virtual or these culinary borders around what is considered Irish food? Oh, there it is. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, it's mainly produce. But, like, when you look at our produce, like, you look at all the top cheese makers, um... Jeffa Girl, Gina Ferguson, um, Veronica Steele, all started in what nineteen seventy. So that that whole movement started. They were all mates, so they basically all started together. So that basically started in nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine, all by foreign women that like obviously like moved to Ireland. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a produce, really. And, like, I, I think it's of the land. I don't think it's of the people. But that could be controversial as well. Yeah, I just, I, I really think it's of the land. What are some of your favorite, um, some of your favorite purveyors, some of the people that make the food and the ingredients that make Kai able to do what it does? Can you talk about some of your favorites? Yeah, like, I mean, like, I have, like, 140 suppliers. Like, I have suppliers that can only supply me for um, three weeks because they, there was a storm and their polytunnels, like, gone to shit. But, yeah, but, like, favorite favorite suppliers, it'd be, like, you know, duck eggs and uh, the blueberries from the bog and it'd be, like, Trisha's strawberries that will only be around for two and a half weeks too. Um, razor clams to um, the olivers bringing in the lobster to knee bringing in the crab off the islands or like even being busy and then you have to bike to the docks to pick up the crab, put the crab in the bike, bike the crab back to the restaurant. Um, it's all pretty manic. Um, to, yeah, the buttermilk, to the raw milk, um, to picking the fig leaves at Sally Quill's house on the long walk. And then biking them back to the restaurant, um, you know, getting the black elderflower every year. As someone 
you know, I've never been to Ireland and I think there are people don't know a lot about Ireland. And also there's a lot of misconceptions about what we've already been talking about, what Irish, what Irish cuisine might be. What is one item that you think is like a really brilliant representation of the land that you can get in Ireland? that maybe would be really surprising? Yeah, well, you know, like surprising to me and surprising people is like different. Um, well, for me, it's always the, for me, it's always the butter. You know, the butter, well, you, I can taste, when I taste the butter, I can tell you where the butter's come from in Ireland now. That's so cool. Yeah. So, and like, it's really funny because when all the cows go into the sheets in November, you get really shit coffee. So the milk goes like completely weird. So it's really like, I don't know. It's like milk and honey. It's like the universal thing of every country, I think, which is kind of really unique because it's really unique to the to its own region, but it's also really unique to the world as well. I do, though, think that especially, you know, in the United States and near large cities, as much as people say that they're doing what you're doing, it's yes. a lot more difficult in the United States because a lot of the purveyors either they they maybe don't exist or they don't have the capabilities or they've been gobbled up by larger corporations. And you're saying yeah. you have 140 purveyors and you're getting basically everything directly from the source. To a certain extent, you're not you're not getting a, a major purveyor that's gathering all these items up for you and you're ordering from them, right? You have a lot of personal relationships that you've built over time. No, I mean, yeah, like personal relationships that have built over 17 years, like the same lettuce guy that believes, like from the salad to the flowers that you see in Kaya is, and all the berries are grown by one man. Um, and then like we save all the containers we possibly can and then Steve fills them up. And then um, like Steve will grow like Alpine strawberry. Um, the golden raspberries, anything like that. He's just completely dedicated to what he does. But like, yeah, I mean, like the fact that you can eat a salad looking at its flowers, um, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. And it's it's only when I go away, and it's always when you go away and then you come back that you realize how special um, Kai is as a place, you know. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. I know you are opening or have opened a shop dedicated to the cakes can you talk about that and like explain what's happening with that and how that how the cakes came to be so synonymous with kai especially because you said how much you hate doing pastry stuff i'm actually quite curious about that 
Yeah, well, it was really funny because I started getting like all these CVs because I needed a pastry chef because up to then I was doing with cakes and that's why the cakes look like they're completely chunky and wonky. Not one of them is the same. They're all like different layers and stuff like that. They're all completely different. And um, so I was like, oh, shit. Um, And so we got this really amazing French pastry chef, you know, as like everybody's, you know, tech dream French pastry chef. Amazing. Um, and his name was Fabian and, um, um, Fabian was like, um, oh, um, like, why not? Like he was making all these little cakes, you know, like you'd see in a tissue and like, um, he's like, why aren't they selling? And I was like, dude, cause you don't fuck them up enough. You know, they're all perfect. You need to fuck them up because people feel intimidated by something perfect in Ireland. You need a bit of fucking character, you know, you need a bit of sideways action. Or you need a star, no, so, or whatever you think is the worst first, first possible thing that you can fucking garnish a cake with, garnish it because it's hilarious and people will buy it. What are your next steps, hopes, dreams for Kai and also maybe on a larger scale for food in Ireland? You're obviously, you're an ambassador in more ways than one now and you've, you've become very um, enmeshed in in Galway, what what else do you think you can achieve with restaurants and with food as you look to maybe the next? I know you said you're not a planner, but like, what do the next like five or ten years look like? Like, what can you accomplish? It seems like you're really like seriously picking up speed um, in having all these projects uh, spider webbing out from the restaurant. Yeah, it's really weird because they are like, I mean, even like. Um... They call them TY students here. I don't know if you have TY students. It's it's basically it's it's students that don't really know what they're going to do. Um, so they get to go on all these work experiences to figure out what they're going to do. Anyway, so like there's a school next door to me, um, the Jesuit uh, school, and I started working with a guidance counselor there. And like we started chatting, and I was like, "Hey, man, I left school at like fifteen and a half, sixteen. Like, there's nothing wrong with me." Like in New Zealand, like we have a like a saying, like you're either good with your head or your hands, and it doesn't matter. You're not you're not one better than the other because one went to college and the other one like grafted for five years. You know, I always took the hard road, but like it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to take the hard road. But anyway, so we talk to these kids all the time, and then Alan got a polytunnel up. So therefore, now we're growing vegetables in the school next door. That's just started off as another random side project. So now I'm kind of employing like a chef one day a week to kind of look after that. I did like I read a lot into like Alice Waters how she could afford to do that when she opened the restaurant. Um, and yeah, it's it's, it's working out alright. Um, haven't seen the local like the figures as such yet but once it's in like full tilt on the summer the polytunnel will be great and we just take like we get all these students that are like little gangs and we put them together the body bed for three hours each and then three of them get together weed the polytunnel bring in the basil all that kind of stuff to the chefs that are working in the restaurant and then down the road in a nightclub they catch them in the nightclub and i was like what are you doing with your kitchen upstairs Anyway, drove them down with the wrench because I was like, there was no one in there anyway. Um, and so I just put kind of the bakery side there and um, 
just employed basically a, a machine of a woman from the Czech Republic to actually start doing sourdoughs up there because it's a really fucked pizza oven that goes to like 400 degrees with broken like pizza stones and stuff in it. That was like perfect, you know. Um, this is perfect for sourdough. You know, we don't need fucking deck ovens, whatever. Like, you know, do the shit and then talk about the shit afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of people don't realize that you have to do that. People like talking about the shit and then not really doing it. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's the fan. And then obviously we're doing like nightclub food as well. Like, so if there's like 30th birthdays, we're doing like chicken wings and shit, but like no one knows it's us doing the catering. Thank God. Um, <laughs> so, you know, love don't pay the rent. You know, you still got to heat up those sausage rolls and uh, put them on platters with fucking tomato ketchup and uh, get that rent paid. And then you can fuck around with your asses and laminating upstairs to your heart's content. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm kind of spreading myself out over the neighborhood because our freezer is in the local fruit and veg shop as well. So it's basically a direct straight line down the road. You just see people walking up and down the road. Um which is quite funny because, like, when people start, you know, like, the freezer's in the fruit and veg shop. You have to go and pick up the cake, which is in the nightclub. You have to take a key because they're not open yet. And then, like, sometimes when you start a pastry shift, people are still there having pints because they just finished work. Like, um, yeah, it's just, it just seems normal to me, but, like, from the outside, I'd say it looks pretty fucking crazy. So you're basically taking over the town, essentially, is what we're hearing. Yeah, like not even the town. It's like, you know, one small room and one building. Good person. It might be a weird time to ask this, but what's something that like excites you about Irish food right now? Oh, well, it's just because no one's really put value on Irish food, which has always really pissed me off being a foreigner because I think Irish food is the best food in the world. Like, I mean, not to like keep on bagging about Copenhagen, but like going to Norway and stuff like that. And like, you have like a, like a kid explaining to you, like, this is like Pippadillas. It tastes like truffle. You're like, no shit, man. I can get you fucking 10 kilos of this. Even if I just like left the house and come back in like 10 minutes in Ireland. Why are we fucking talking like this in Ireland? Why can't we just rip these guys up and talk the shit that they're talking about our food? Like, you know. Um, so seeing the increased value on what people grow and are making for me is like really important. Same with like, um, you know, like we recently started killing dairy cows, um, like seven year old dairy cows in my butcher and like started hanging them up. And then I basically sold them to like really high end restaurants. Um, like I sold them in Kai, that's fine. But like, you know, if you get them into like two mission star restaurants with those guys kind of okaying all that kind of stuff then like like for sure that's going to be make it like it's food is fashion it's going to be fashionable you know so like finally like we started doing that and adding value to dairy cow and dairy meat and like these guys are like were to norway and stuff like that and they're like oh what breed is that cow and i'm like oh yeah it's like it's like frisian um norwegian red and jersey and they're like oh so it's not what breed and i was like no man like you don't just take arses and breeds, you have to fucking feed people. And so you take you take the mixed race cows of of, of mixed breed cat, breed cows because that like makes it makes more sense. You know, you can feed a lot of people. 
um, because I met the head of the Irish Farming Association at a rugby game. And I was kind of like saying, hello, you know, it'd be really good because like Ireland's always getting shit about the national herd and the herd size because it's really bad for the environment. And I was like, you know what we need to do is like we really need to start eating them. And then he thought I was joking. And then like I'd say three weeks after that, I'd bought two of his cows and they were already dead. And the avatar having for 30 days, you know, kind of like the big kind of macho kind of chefs like to hang them so long ago, but I think they've got it 32, 30 to 32 days. Everyone's like, you know, I'm going to take this to like 52 days and I'm going to dip it in beeswax. I'm like, dude, whatever, just buy the meat, don't care, take the cash, sign or what you do with the cow is fine. Just don't make it shit. You know? What's the flavor of a seven-year-old dairy cow like for, you know, for someone who hasn't had a chance to try Oh, my it? gosh. Yeah, well, Irish beef is pretty much grass-fed. So it's probably the best beef that you've ever had. So if you've ever been to Kobe in Japan or you've ever had some kind of Wagyu thing with the, like, fat, like, particles going in it, um, yeah, it's just the most amazing, like, it's the most amazing, like, meat. You never, never, ever tried anything like it in your life. Do you cook it differently than, you know, say your average No, I cook it medium rare. I cook it however you want it. Um, like, I'm not a food sub. I'm really anti that shit. So, and actually, with the fat marbling in it, if you want it at medium, it'll still hold up, like, you know, like it still holds up to like an absolute like flavor bomb. So, you know, that's it. It's, it's just good beef. If you actually have some free time, where do you go? Do you go out? Do you hang out in Galway? Do you go out to Connemara? Like what, where are some of your favorite places to take a little day trip for someone who might be coming to visit? Yeah. I mean, a day trip, um, you definitely go out to Connemara and you would stop at Sullivan's Rosa. And you would get a loaf of bread and some sliced ham and you'd go out. That's what I'd normally do on a day, you know, like on a day off. Or you'd go out to like County Clare and you'd go to Vaughan's and the Scanner. Um, which like they just do fish and chips, but you can also, it's a pub where you can buy like toothpaste, Tampax, um, toilet paper bleach, and also have like a 30 year old. 30-year-old, like, a sourdough, like, deep-fried piece of fish, which is fabulous. So, yeah, I plan to go to those places. Like, um, I mean, even in town, like, when you, when you can't drive out of town, like, going to McCambridge's and getting a ham sandwich from McCambridge's and sitting there and eating it in the Spanish Arch is absolutely amazing. Um, and then, you know, like, if you're feeling bougie, you can go up to Sheridan's Blind Bar. Yeah, I tend to, like, eat locally and stuff like that. So, yeah. I mean, like, I live a minute around the corner from the restaurant. So, um, yeah, for me, it's uh, a no-brainer. Like, I, I live and eat around the West End all the time. All my favorite restaurants around here, like, whether or not you go to Mona Lisa, they call it for an Irish cabanara. It's like the cabanara with cream in it, which cracks me up every time because I'm like, yeah, there'll be four of us girls and we'll be like, yeah, man, we love the Irish cabanara. Pour that cream in there. Don't fucking do it properly. Um, but yeah, there's loads, there's loads of places like that. You know, we have Woodsa, Woodsa, which is like a little pizza place next door to Kai. Uh, Woodfire Pizza. Um, they're really cool. Their pizzas are amazing. All those lads are from Naples. 
Um, they're really friendly to us because we give them all the leftover cakes, as you could imagine, with their favorite neighbor. Um, and also, sometimes they let me use their wood fire um, pizza oven to like cook a load of leeks off that I serve with burrata at night, you know, so utilizing the whole neighborhood. Um, yeah, and there's lots of bars in the West End. Like, you can go for a toasted sandwich or a hot dog or anything like that. And it's all local, like locally made food. Like, there's no kind of processed shit going on here. Sounds amazing how you yeah. all can just kind of sound like neighbors borrowing a cup of sugar from each other to a certain extent. It's just walking in and out of, of people's places and being like, well, you helped me out last week. I'm going to help you out this week. And you know what? Uh, I'm going to, you know, steal something from you today and I'll give it back to you next week. It sounds amazing. Exactly. Like people know because the nightclub is always open. People have these run out of flour. So they're like, can I go up and get, have you got any flour? And I'm like, yeah, you have to walk through the fucking dance floor. And they're like, no problem. <laughs> and I'm like, get on it. But what I love about like Woozer as well, which is a local pizza place, is that they give us diet cokes for a year. No one can break that bond, that bond of like. <laughs> Love that. Like one euro Coca-Cola is like, you know, six o'clock pre-service Coke. Amazing. Yeah. Jess, I just want you to uh, shout out where people can find you. So, you know, the, your Instagram and uh, the restaurant's website so that people can, you know, next time they plan their trip to Galway, they make sure that they, they stop in. Yeah, so, um, like, my Instagram is Kai Boy. Um, I don't really know our website. I think it's www.kairestaurant. That's about um, right. Um, don't, I don't even know my house number. <laughs> um, that is a true story. Just go to Galway, find your way to the West End, and ask where Jess is. And... Check out the Instagram, of course, which has very beautiful cakes, which I don't think are wonky at all. And I think look totally delicious. Yeah, they're a bit chalky. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank thanks, you so Jess. much. Great to talk to you. No worries, guys. Um, thanks for like bearing with my really nasally COVID kid. I think it gives it a nice added, uh, it gives it a nice added subtext and context it's like here's the chef who has covid that's it's real you know it's it's really happening <laughs> yeah well it's kind of like my sex line voice as well like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like what are you doing i'm whining awesome thanks jess bye thanks again so good talk to you dyed green is a production of bog and thunder we run food tours in Ireland. Bog and Thunder is a company that Kate and I started together, and each of our food tours in Ireland is run by us and an Irish collaborative partner. And our guest today, Jess Murphy, is actually a co-host of one of our tours that we're running in September. It's called Welcome to the West, and it's focused on Galway and Connemara. It's going to be a really incredible trip, and we would love to see you there. Come find out more at bogandthunder.com. Cheerio!